Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, November 13th, and we're talking about the process, building the process and trusting the process. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by longtime fool and lead advisor on the Cloud Disruptors 2020 product, Tim Byers. Tim, how's it going? Going well, Dylan. Going well. How about you? I can't complain. This is my favorite time of the year. I've got the, these nice, you know, burnt orange colors in Washington, D.C. The weather's beautiful. It's a great time to go walk outside. I'm hopping into Rock Creek Park as much as I can on the weekend these days. That's beautiful. I mean, it's pretty cold here in uh, in the mountains in Colorado, but uh, it'll warm up a little bit in the next few days and we'll get that beautiful, uh, you know, winter but sort of Indian summerish, and so we've got the leaves, but the snow hasn't come and, and stuck on the ground yet. If you've ever been to Colorado, you know that the snow does not stick on the ground for very long. Um, we have one of the best winters in the entire world, I'll argue. But of course, I'm arguing for the home team here. So I've lived in Colorado for over 20 years. You know, I have been to Fool, Colorado. I desperately want to get back, and I am excited to be able to do that at some time, hopefully in 2021, because in addition to Colorado being wonderful, you guys have some pretty cool stuff going on out there. It is a really awesome group of people um, and a very fun office. So I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that I can make that happen sometime soon. In the meantime, Tim, I have to I have to settle for virtual you and uh, <laughs> and settle for hosting you on, on the show this way, which which is fine by me. This is great too. Um, and and the reason I wanted to have you on is to really talk through the investing process that you like to use. And you know, folks that listen to the show, you know, Brian Froley's on a lot. And what I love about having Brian on is he's someone who has a very set way of how he likes to look at businesses. He does, yeah. He's he's really kind of taken a methodical approach and honed it over time. And what's great is you can show your work when you're when you're going through all these things. And Tim, I mean, you've been investing for quite some time. I think you are also someone who has put a lot of thought into how you look at businesses. And so I wanted to have you on to talk through how you do that, and then um, just give people another take on what that looks like. Sure. I mean, so you want to start with like in investing at like where do the ideas come from? Yeah, I, th- I think we can go from kind of the initial spark of like this this might be interesting to you know how do you break that business down and ultimately you know what's the decision maker for you when you're deciding to put some money behind something and so I, I guess yeah let's start with the idea I mean I think there's a lot of lore to discovering companies you know there's there's this idea of sifting through spreadsheets or filters or you know that 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 old wives tale of being in line at a fast casual restaurant and seeing the line is long and realizing, Hey, this might be something, you know? So, I mean, wh- where did the ideas come from for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I hope this isn't a horribly boring answer, but uh, there are three places principally, and almost none of them have to do with the traditional uh, things you might think of like looking at lists or doing a screen. I just, I really don't do that. And and part of the process for me has been I'm drawing on my experience in, in tech. And uh, so I started um, many years ago. Like I, I started my career as a sports reporter, 
You know, we talked about sports before we came on on air here. I started as a sports reporter. I was a really terrible sports reporter, uh, but but I was a sports reporter. And then I worked in sports PR. And after a while, um, when I got my my graduate degree at at Syracuse, so you know, go Orange. Um, I um, you know I got a little exhausted with the process of just being in in sports because it was intense and it was amazing and i'm so grateful for it because and we could talk about this sometime or maybe even before the hour is over but i had a chance twice while i was at at syracuse to cover nba preseason games and i got to meet charles barkley and michael jordan and and the second game um i'm doing stats for the late great tom Meese of of espn and, you know, it's a Chicago Bulls preseason game. I don't remember who they were playing. It might have been the Nets, which don't even, you know, I guess the the Nets is is Brooklyn now. I'm not yeah. even sure. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. This is when they're still in New Jersey. And I am, uh, you know, I'm just doing stats. And Michael Jordan comes over to the table, says hi to Mr. Mees. Like, wow, this is amazing. And there were lots of great moments like that, but I, I got a little exhausted by it. So when I went back to California, um, I started working for this tech PR firm and I got enamored instantly. I just completely got lost in it and learning everything I could about deep tech. And so now when I start looking at deep tech stocks, I draw on that experience. And the first thing I do uh, is talk with people. I talk with our developers. Like that's the number one filter for me. Um, I, every two weeks, I have this call on the books with one of our cybersecurity experts, uh, this really wonderful guy named Jeff Lovett. And Jeff and I just spend an hour at just talking about stuff. And he will help me dissect things that I don't see because he's deep into the weeds. And so the first thing that happens when I'm looking at an idea is somebody who has used the product or knows about the product has told me something that sort of sparks like, I heard something, okay, that's unusual. So like, for example, people have heard me talk about Snowflake on Fool Live very often. When BG, who I've had on, on This Week in Tech, who's in our data platform team, when BG and Nicole, who are, are the leaders of our data platform team, tell me, this thing is amazing, and it would be very hard for me to not use this, I get real interested. Yeah, there's usually good money to be made with delighted customers. I think that's, yes. <laughs> that's a good investing uh, axiom to follow. <laughs> big time, big time. So I start with... Um, I, I really do start with, you know, the product, like that's the thing in, in tech for me, there are many other, um, there are many other investors who have different processes. Like Jim Gillies always starts with a proxy statement. He wants to see if leaders are aligned with, uh, investors. That's a great way to go. I always start with the product. Like I want to know whether or not the product is is a is a meaningful product that's going to delight customers in some way, um, and and sometimes that comes like another thing that I'll use. I, I'll look for unusual stories. So the way I found Peloton, this is this is true. This is I, I I'm I don't know if I'm not proud of this or if it's just like it, it's sort of just kind of um, 
sort of blew me away. Like I had heard I can't, about I can't it. wait to see where you're going with this, Tim. <laughs> I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I didn't really know what it was. I had to ask people what it was. And then my wife told me a little bit more about what it was and, and how people really love it. And then I didn't really get serious about it until I read this article called I Joined a Stationary Biker Gang. That was <laughs> that was in, in the Atlantic, and the whole thesis for it was that um, people go crazy every year going to what's called Peloton Homecoming. Like I knew about the bike, and I knew that it was interesting, but nothing really put me over the edge on this until I learned about Peloton Homecoming. Do you know what this is? I don't. No, no. And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners don't. So what, what's the what's the 30 or 60 seconds on it? Peloton Homecoming, very simply, is like our Fool Fest. People go to New York and thousands and thousands of people pay to go to New York to get like FaceTime with the people that they work out with because this is all virtual, but there are a lot of affinity groups that work out together and they meet up at Peloton Homecoming and they like do these amazing things. It's like a, you know, it's like a reunion and it gets bigger every year. And so that told me that not only are they delighting customers, but they've actually built a community and that community is sticky and it's independent of the product. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence that this business is, is more than what it was being depicted as. And, and so I guess that filtering mechanism is a little bit different for how the ideas come in. But the, the core thing that you're looking for is the same as your first example when it comes to talking with the end user, where it's like you want people that are delighted. You want rabid users and people that are going to evangelize for this product or this brand. The product matters. Yes, the, the, the product matters. And not, not the product itself, but people's experience with the product. This is something that Steve Jobs was really good at. And instead of the, the late Steve Jobs, as, as much, um, as, as much um, sort of vitriol he gets for some of the ways he was just kind of cruel and, and some other things. Like, he, he didn't have universally good traits. I think we can fairly say that. But what he did understand is that what you're looking for is people's experience with a product. How people experience the product and their connection to it is, a, is an indicator of value. And so that's what I look for. I look for people's experience with the product. If it's if they're meaningfully engaged, so like BG and Nicole tell me, this is crucial to our business. We're not looking at another data warehouse. This is the thing that we're going to use. And then I ask them the question, well, what would cause you to switch? And the answer, and this is true, from Nicole says, well, I can't really envision something that would force me to switch. And I say, okay. I'm going deeper on this one. <laughs> yeah, bingo. That's what you want to hear if you're if you're an investor. Um, I'm I'm sure there are some folks listening, Tim, that that say, well, you know, Tim, you have you have a background in tech, right? You 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 spent a lot of time in this space, um, and so you've probably tuned some of your your content filtering. You know, the the news you consume, whether it's newsletters or things that you go to, um, to get some information. And there might be some people that are like, you know, it's awesome that you have these employees at the Fool that you can talk to that work in these spaces. I don't have access to those types of people in my everyday life. Um, are there any sites or forums or aggregators 
that you could point to and say, you know, this is this is a really good place if you don't have those people to start getting some of that information? Yeah, you know, if if you're talking about a tech product, let's just say we're talking about tech for for a minute here. Um, there are a couple things you could do. Just about every one of these tech companies and tech products, they have some kind of community. So there are things you can look for. Like you can go and join that community or you can observe it and you can see how active it is. Like if it's if it's stale, like the last message posted was three weeks ago, that tells you something. That tells you that um, it's not it's not that interesting. Whereas like uh, if you go to say one of the products that I use that I'm a big consumer of, uh, Airtable. If you go to the Airtable community, which anybody can get into, if you take a look at that, you're going to see a boatload of messages. You're going to see a lot of messages. And what that tells you is that even when those messages are frustrations, like why can't you do this yet? Another way to frame why can't you do this yet is I love your product. Help me use it more. Right, yeah. Like that yeah. Is... I think Tim. I, I think something that that can sometimes get lost in the customer feedback loop, or or what what could sound like criticism, is like I love you so much, and I want you to be even better. I want you to be better. Yes. Why aren't you solving this problem for me yet? Like because I use you for so many things, and I can envision like five other things I could do with your product. Please help me do those things. Like when you see a customer begging for that, and you do see it, you know, like you can go to some of these forums for these tech products and you'll see people saying, hey, when is this coming? When is this coming? You know, that tells you that that company not only has customers who are interested, they have customers who want to buy more, which means they have optionality. So that community aspect can be very illuminating. I'm guessing Zoom is one of those businesses. <laughs> so far, it's so far in 2020, right? That has probably had an outpouring of of folks reaching out. And and just because we're kind of letting a lot of the fool into this podcast episode, I'll just say, you know, you mentioned Airtable. I was in a meeting the other day where someone joked, just like, all right, you know, we've said Airtable three times. Take a drink, you know. Like it's basically like <laughs> one of one of the most mentioned platforms internally at the fool right now, and it has spread like wildfire because it's so successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, there are, I mean, it, admittedly, I'll just, you know, so there you go. There's my Airtable shirt. Um, I'm not the only one, by the way, who's been an Airtable evangelist inside of The Fool. I mean, Doug Real has been a big one who's on our Blueprint team. Um, Katie Carrera, who's like a power user, you know, of, of Airtable. And these people are growing up inside the company. When you start to see that, it is an indicator that, that things are going well. So yes, one thing you can do if you don't have access to it, but I would also say, you know, like you could look at those communities, but I would also say you probably have more connections than you know you do. And it could just be like asking your kid or asking an acquaintance and say, hey, do you know anybody who develops software? Like, do you know any software developers? Like odds are, or even just ask somebody at your work, you know, the vast majority of software developers are not working at a high tech company in Silicon Valley. They work in middle America and they're either uh, keeping software or they're developing new software for a company. It could be like a retailer. 
I mean, seriously, that's the vast majority of, of developers do that stuff. So you probably know them. You just haven't really engaged with them yet. So, so Tim, with the sources that we just talked about for ideas, we've got basically talking with folks and, and kind of just understanding people who have expertise, you know, what, what are they really focused on? What do they love? Um, looking for some of those unusual stories, like you mentioned with Peloton, um, or a product that just does something that nothing else in the marketplace can do, or, or addresses a need that you really need to be able to scratch. Um, you invest in a lot of things. We're going to keep this kind of in the tech sandbox because this is a tech show. Um, but when you see that, what, what is kind of the threshold for you being like, you know, I am going to dig deeper and I'm going to spend, you know, whatever that, that initial glance might be, an hour, two hours, really starting to look at this business? Yeah, it, it's usually, for me, it's usually pretty fast only because I have an overdeveloped sense of this because, and that's just the product of years. So for other, you know, your mileage may vary. But the first thing I do is I use what I call the bomber test, which is just my silly way of saying like, does it appeal to developers? Because if you've never seen it, go look up Steve Bomber developers. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The YouTube will come up. Um and um, but Bomber was right that developers do matter. And so when you see developers that are um, sort of coming on board and using a tool or talking about a tool, um, it 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 helps. So for me, like I have access to developers, so I can verify that for us, because we use fastly, and I can ask our developers how we use it. And I can get Dan Sebas telling me, like, I can envision, like, 10 different things we can do with this thing. It really starts to resonate with me. Independent of that, you can use this tool called GitHub. And GitHub is, you know, you can look up um, how, a company's, uh, how a company's product um, is actually rated. You know, you can look at the star ratings for some of the software libraries they'll put up there. And all of these companies, they usually put their software up on GitHub. It's a way to organize software development. And uh, so, yeah, look for look for those stars. It, it can be very interesting. Also, just look for, you know, stories. Uh, you can just Honestly, you can do a Google search and say, like, you know, name your company, developers, and see what pops up. You know, if developers are talking about this, it's usually a good sign. So that's one thing I do. If developers are interested, and and sometimes in their SEC filings, they'll say, like, we have X many developers that use our product. All of those things are are a, it's a checkbox. If developers like it. I'm, I'm starting to get interested. Um, another thing I'll say is I want to look at this from the perspective of how was the company born? So I, I really like to look at the origin story. Um, we talked about product, like products what I lead with, right? Something, a historical pattern that I have found is that especially in tech, when a founder is customer zero, like they had this problem and they were determined to build a product to solve it, that's usually a really good indicator. And so there are many companies like this, Fastly's like this. Arthur Bergman, working at the Wikimedia Foundation, playing around with other content delivery networks, it's not working for him, saying, screw it, I'm going to build my own. Builds his own, makes it better. That's a customer zero 
instance incident, right? That's that's fastly, you know, being founded by a CEO of now chief architect who says, I'm gonna be customer zero here and build something better. That was also true for MongoDB. It's also And for the and for the folks ahead. that aren't and for, for the folks that maybe aren't familiar with MongoDB and Fastly, I mean Shopify is like There you boom. go. That that is yeah. like probably one of the one of the best known and extremely successful case studies in yes. exactly what you're talking about there, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Toby Lutka, customer zero. I'm going to build it myself because the thing that I need does not exist. In tech, which is naturally an innovative field, when a founder comes in and is and is customer zero, pay attention. Pay attention yeah. to that. I, I love that because usually if that's the case, it isn't hard to find that. You know, it's going to be it's going to be front and center in the prospectus. It's probably going to be in the about us on the on the company website. 100%. Yes. Anybody anybody who's covering it, especially if it's a lesser known company that's coming public, that's going to be in the lead of the news article about that company. That that just becomes the story. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And then the third thing I look for is um, how big of a problem is this? It can be a, an annoyance for a founder, but if it's not a big enough problem that it's shared widely, then that can be just a nice little hobby. Um, but to be an investable business, it really does have to be a migraine level problem. So is it a shared problem? Like, is the problem an annoyance for this you know, founder who is customer zero and they have solved a problem that is a big problem? Like in the case of Fastly, it clearly is a big problem. There are big sites that need to be able to dynamically update, you know, their content instantly in microseconds. It cannot be like a thirty-second delay. We can't have that. So Fastly's innovations are necessary and applicable to a wide group. Same thing with MongoDB, and same thing with something like Twilio. So you do want to take a look at the total addressable market. And last weekend, I did a little bit of a, a, a deep dive on taking a look at total addressable market by identifying who the ideal customer is. So really, all this is, Dylan, is like, who's the ideal customer? How many of them are there? If there are a lot of them, you've, you've got something. Like in the case of Twilio, for example, you've got essentially the world's developers because everybody's putting communications into their software, texting, email, what have you, right? So you got tens of millions of developers. That's a pretty big market. So yeah, yeah I and, see and it. Tim, Tim, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned Twilio. I was going to mention Twilio because, um, you know, I, I think developers can be an overlooked element within the tech space. And, and for me, that, like, that company was a real turning point in understanding who needs to love a product. And, and, and part of it was they were, they were so open and candid about it. They were just like, developers love us. Like, <laughs> if you talk to developers, they're going to be like, yep, they give us the building blocks. They make our jobs way easier. We don't have to build this thing. We're able to integrate it. And, and that really changed the lens that I looked at a lot of companies with. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, take a look at what the customers say about the company and be clear, um, on, you know, very often a company will tell you who their ideal customer is. Twilio is very clear about this. They say right up front in their SEC filings, developers are our customer. These are the people that we talk to. And you want to know that. you know. And, and if a company is ambiguous or let's do the warning sign. So the flip side of this is say like, 
our stuff is for everybody, run. Run away from that because there's no such thing. You know, if you don't have a niche that you're starting with, and you don't have a, a problem that you're solving for a very specific customer, then really you're just doing, you know, a finger in the wind. That's all that is. That's a bad strategy. Run from that. <laughs> so Tim, so far we've we've spent a good chunk of the time on kind of the, the softer stuff that you, you need to do some reading. You need to get a feel for the business. Um, you, you mentioned TAM, and I think we can briefly touch on a couple financial elements that, that you tend to look for once you feel like, this this might be something. There might be something here. So, um, you know, when you're looking at the numbers, does does it start with total addressable market? Are you looking at the financials first? You know, where are you tending to focus your early research? The uh, the financials are the last thing that I look at. They 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 quite literally are the last thing I look at. I look at I look at um, customer and product. Like those two are the first two things that I look for: customer and product. Then I look at leadership. And I look to see whether or not this is a customer zero company. If it's a customer zero company, I'm really interested. And one of the other patterns that I have found in tech that that really resonates is a technical founder paired with a business founder. So that's like HubSpot. You know, Brian Halligan, Dharmas Shaw. You know, one is the CEO, one's the CTO. Shared vision, but division of responsibilities. That can be a really great combo. Um, that was also true, for example, at, at MongoDB. Now, those founders, after more than 13 years later, after starting the business, they've since moved on. I'm not really concerned about that because 13 freaking years, that's a long time to do a heavy lift, right? Um, but, but similar idea. Um, so I, I like that a lot. And then when I finally get to the financials, Dylan, I start looking at some metrics that are, are that are a little off standard. I start looking for what I call the compounding metrics because very often what you're seeing are things like it's not profitable yet or you know revenue growth is off the charts but they're burning cash. I mean, you know, how much money are they going to need to raise? When are they going to get profitable? Like things like that. So instead, I start looking for high rates of, of revenue growth, but I started looking for things that give me some sense of unit economics. And unit economics meaning for every product that they sell, say every license, every time somebody uses the product, the more people that use it, the more profitable it becomes. Like I want to be able to see evidence that that is going on. So I look for things like gross profit growing faster than revenue. That's really useful. I also like to see over a long period of time when revenue growth is uh, leading, let's say, uh, R&D growth, revenue growth leading R&D growth. That can be um, really uh, useful as well because I, want, I don't just want to see like good products. What I really want to see is good products that are saleable. So if a company is spending a boatload on R&D, but revenue growth is slowing, that, that's, you know, they may be throwing a lot of money at products that don't work. So I like to see that too. And then there's this unusual statistic called the rule of 40. It's not a perfect statistic, but I like to see some improvement in this area. I don't need it to be over 40, but here's how the math works. You're taking the revenue growth rate 
So as a percentage, so let's say a company's growing 50% annually. And then I add to that the operating margin. So revenue growth rate plus the operating margin percentage. So let's say a company is growing 50%, right? And its operating margin is negative 10%, still losing money. Well, that's still 40. So rule of 40 says like there's enough growth there that over time we can expect this to be a cash generating company. I like to just see that even if it's not 40, I like to just see it improving. If it's improving, I'm good. Like I want to see signs that this company is gaining steam as it grows. If it's not, then I have to ask why. I love all of that. And and <laughs> I think Brian and I have joked on this show before, you know, doing the prospectus breakdowns. Like it's a high growth company that's losing a ton of money because they're just shoveling money into sales and marketing. Tell me if you've heard this before, right? Yeah, and, right. And just like we 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 see this over and over and over again. And so I think um, you know, to be clear, we're talking about relatively early stage businesses with a lot of the criteria that you're using. Um, the, this kind of goes out the window for something that has been profitable for maybe five or 10 years and is a lot firmer in its position in the market that it's going to be grown into. Yeah, totally. I mean, a mature business, you really wouldn't want to use the same uh, level of, of diligence. You would want to be looking at profit. You'd want to be looking at, at margins. And you'd really want to be looking at like if this was a dominant tech business, one uh, metric, it's not a bulletproof metric, but one you could really look at is free cash flow margin. And, uh, you know, like the best of these tech businesses have ridiculous free cash flow margins. Let me give you an example Amazon Web Services, 30% free cash flow margin. That is bananas. Meaning, so like 30 cents of every dollar of revenue flowing down to, for Amazon Web Services shows up as cash, period. Just cash. Like that is extraordinary. Yeah, and that's why they can do everything that they can do, right? They that's have why they that can do everything they can do. They have a cash engine that's pushing everything forward for them. 100%. Yep. Um and and one of the other things I think one of the threads I want to pull from what you what you laid out with the financials is when you see things like gross profit growing faster than revenue or growing faster than R&D or sales and marketing spend. It kind of signals a couple different things. One of them is that there's leverage that the company is enjoying, and it is it is basically being able to spread more usage over whatever fixed costs they may have in place, and that leads to a more profitable business over time. One of the other things that that can hint at is existing users are continuing to spend, and they maybe are even spending more. And so that initial sales and marketing investment that you're making winds up really paying off down the road as you're in year two, three, four, five of your relationship with your customers. Yeah. And you should always ask. So when you see those, let's take that one step further and say, like, when you see that, right, you may also see a the company support a, a or, or publish a statistic called either dollar-based net expansion rate or dollar-based net retention rate. And as if it's high... Then you know what you're seeing is customers spending more. The difference between those two, by the way, you know, you're just comparing a cohort of customers year over year, and if it's greater than 100%, that means they're spending more. The more the the greater it is over 100%, the more they're spending. Um, if it's an expansion rate, you're taking the same cohort of customers. You know, these 30 customers, and then these 30 customers a year later. If it's a retention rate, it's all the customers that started a year ago, and then the customers that remained 
So it could be like there were 60 customers here and now there are 55 left, but we're counting everything from that 60, including like when those others, they dropped off, everything that dropped off. And then we're just comparing it to a year later. And is it higher? So that retention rate includes churn. Yeah, we, we often say on the show, retention rate is the good one. You know, expansion rate is <laughs> expansion rate helpful, good one. but if retention looks good, then that's even better because it's a, it's, it's a little bit more of a complete number. It is. It, it's absolutely right. And then the other thing you may find is um, if, you know, if you're seeing these efficiencies that a company may have introduced new products, like as part of that R&D spend, there are new products that have come out and now they're selling those new products and it's gaining efficiencies. Um, this is why we like optionality so much. It's why you hear us talking about optionality all the time when a company is making new products and then rolling them out and then you see this divergence, revenues growing faster than say like sales and marketing spend. You know, they're gaining some efficiencies here. That's the beauty of innovation. That's the beauty of innovation. You know, you found something else you could do for the for your customer, you solve that problem, customer spends more. Margins increase. That's good. And and I think what we should kind of remind people of is we talked about TAM before. TAM is not necessarily a static number. You know, it's not it's not established once and then that is the TAM. You know, if you start realizing that there are adjacent markets that you can work in, that TAM could become bigger over time. For sure. I mean, this is you know, a total addressable market is not necessarily useful to say like, wow, this company says its TAM is 80 billion and its revenue is only 200 million right now. It's going to get to 80 billion in revenue someday. No, don't think about it like that. But do think about it in terms of how is that company behaving? If it has a large market and that TAM has historically been growing and it's serving its ideal customers, with more stuff and it's growing it's you know the amount of business it does with those customers over time and its tam is growing then this company's probably very healthy it may be expensive but it's probably very healthy and has more runway than even the street expects uh, so far when we've been talking numbers tim we we talked tam and i think we we wound up hitting cash flow and the income statement um, before we leave numbers, is there anything on the balance sheet that you really tend to focus on with the first glance at a business? Yeah, I want to see um, if they're not yet cash flow positive, how much, you know, what's the burn rate? So if they are burning cash, how much are they burning? And how much do they have in the bank after you subtract all of their lease obligations and bank debt? How much do they have and how long could they support this cash burn? So um, if it's, let's say they have 200 million in cash and 100 million in debt and leases, that's $100 million of excess cash. If they're only burning $10 million of cash a year, that's 10 years of runway. That's fine. But if it's $70 million that they're burning, I may not, I may not want to invest here because they're going to have to go back to the well real soon. And, and the terms on that may not be great. Yeah, and as an investor, that puts you in a spot where they're either going to be taking on more debt, or you're going to get diluted as a shareholder. You're going to get you're going to get diluted, and you you really don't know. Like, and and here's the thing that I ask in that situation is, why is the cash burn so high? Like, what is it they're trying to achieve, and is it worth it? Like that, and and that's a that's a good question to ask. Like every time you're looking at a business where there's some unknowns, 
asking what is it this company's trying to achieve and is it worth it? That's a really useful question to be asking yourself. So and other people. <laughs> it is. Right? And, and that's the beauty of it is like you you can. You can simply throw that question out there. And um, you know, if if uh you know, some management teams are responsive, uh, you know, and, and would be happy to answer those questions. Um Tim, I, I mean you've you've been in tech for such a long time, uh directly and, and as an analyst. And I'm guessing at this point there there is not a lot that is going to get past you. But I'm curious. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious if you still have those moments of, you know, I don't get it or or is this too hard? And and like, you know, what 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 do you do when when that's what you're you're kind of facing? Well, the beauty of the stock market is that I mean, I'm I'm stealing from Warren Buffett here, but uh, you know, you can just keep the bat on your shoulder, man. You do not have to swing at every pitch. And, and that's, that's the beauty of it. So um, if I don't get it, and this happens to me all the time, I don't get it, then uh, I don't swing. And I can give you a, a clear example of this. Um, you know, when there is a company that is assembled from a lot of different parts, particularly a lot of old tech, like I am just, you know, we talked before we came on air about whether or not I'm superstitious. So I'm not really superstitious, but I'll tell you, I'm really suspicious of a company that rebrands, has a lot of old tech and is layering new tech on top of it. That kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies and sometimes unfairly so. Like I have immediately taken that and said, nope, I don't want any part of that. And, and I've done that. I've I've done that. the The most recent time I did that was with Dynatrace. So that ticker is DT. This is a company that does application performance management. So essentially, looking at how your infrastructure is performing. It's a Datadog competitor, and I really like Datadog. And so I've been like, I have been admittedly dismissive of this company because it's founded back in like two thousand four. Um, then was formed and and sort of bulked up after a purchase in private equity, I believe. There's an older company called CompuWare that brought it in and then brought it all together. And then it was a private equity firm came in, a good private equity firm, Tama Bravo, came, brought it in, put some more money into it, and then spins it out. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, this just feels... Like you're putting a lot of stuff together and they promised they rebuilt everything from the ground up, but really did they? And so I just got instantly suspicious of it. But you could argue if you look at since IPO and over the past year, Dynatrace has beaten the market. Now it's not beaten the market by as much as companies that I chose to focus on, but it's still beaten the market. So that was some unfair arguably suspicion on my part. But yeah, I every time that comes up, Dylan, and I'm thinking like, this is too hard, my response is, I'm not touching that one. I may come back to it, but I'm not touching it right now. Yeah, I, I think uh, complicated leadership history or complicated corporate history where it's been taken private, brought public again, it's changed hands a couple times. Usually if if someone likes something, they're going to hold on to it. And so that that's kind of a red flag for me as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I have so far been wrong on Dynatrace and I may prove to be wrong for the duration on this company because so far, 
they are winning. They're they're doing fine. They get reasonably good ratings from industry analysts like Gartner. So is my skepticism warranted? I haven't gone back and reevaluated, but at least in terms of stock market performance, the answer is no. My skepticism was not warranted so far. Maybe later on I'll be proven right. I don't know. And that's the beauty of this. We get to keep scoring the whole time. We right? get to keep and, scoring. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and that's that's the fun of it. And uh, you know, we we I think one of the things I love about being at the Fool is we have that transparency. One. Um, and, and what we do allows for that transparency. You know, I, I did a show last week where I was like, I was, I was dead wrong, uh, about, you know, Upwork versus DocuSign. Thankfully I bought them both and, you know, uh, was wound, wound up benefiting from the multi-bagger returns that DocuSign has enjoyed, but I was dead wrong about Upwork and, and that's going to happen. You're not going to be wrong. You're not going to be right all the time. You're going to be wrong sometimes. No, you're going to be wrong a lot. I mean, so if, if I could just kind of, if, if you're going to distill, the, the process that, that, that I use, I recognize that it is, it is not the Brian Feroldi process where it's like a deep checklist and I'm just checking boxes. I, I don't do that. And, and that's primarily because um, I'm relying a lot on my experience. But I can tell you, I start with the product. I start with the product and the customer. I look for the ideal customer and I look for the appeal of the product. Is there a real connection to the product? And if the founder or even the CEO or the team, if there is a customer zero mentality there, if those three things, if those three, if I can check the box on those three things, there's a clear product here that really has a big customer base and that customer base is obviously growing. They have an attachment to it because there's a clear need that really excites me. And and sometimes I get that from developers. Sometimes I get that from articles. But if I can identify that, that's the first thing I look for. Um, and then, you know, customer enthusiasm wrapped around that. So I can tell that there's a big problem here. It's a meaty problem and a lot of people have it that I'm, I'm really interested. And if there's a customer zero mentality here so that I know that there's going to be more building, more improving, like there's a lot of investment that's going to grow this company over time. I'm interested. Like, but I get to the financials at the end of the process. I'm really looking at is this a migraine level problem? You know, are customers really excited and I can identify who those customers are? And um, you know, is this is this a killer product? Like I that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. Is there, I think I know the answer to this, but is there a point where valuation factors in? There is. Like in the case of Snowflake, which is a company that I, I love, but I, there's no way I can justify that valuation because the amount of growth required is um, you know, so massive that I'm just not willing to make a big bet on it. So for me, a company like that, I, like, I might even want to own like one share, but that's it. And then I'm kind of waiting to see because I, you know, I can be patient. The market is always going to give you more opportunities. So that's yeah. My valuation exercises, Dylan, are working back to see like what's the required revenue growth or cash flow yield for for some of these companies. So if I can justify the revenue growth that's required, if, given the present valuation, then I'm interested. And I have a little bit of a model to do that. It's not the same thing as a discounted cash flow analysis, but it's kind of close. 
And that's how I look at it. But it's the end of the process. Like it, it's more important for me to see that this is a this is a company that actually has rabid customers and has a market that it can grow over a long period of time because the products are clearly needed. Because this is this is the thing with tech, right? There are a lot of faker products in tech in particular. You know, boy, you want to have a drinking game, play buzzword <laughs> bingo on any kind of tech. <laughs> you will it's too you easy. will not survive the night. <laughs> <laughs> um, to make sure we didn't miss anything, Tim. Um, we have the focus on the product, the users, leadership team, the founding story. Uh, financials and valuation wind up coming in there at the end. Is there anything that that we missed in that process where you're ultimately saying like, yep, this is something I want to put some money behind? Incentives. I mean, incentives do matter. Um, so when I see how a company and a leadership team measures itself, and if it is consistent with what we want as investors, that is is usually a nice proof point. If it's really off kilter, then I get a little bit concerned. It's something I check. It's it's definitely something I check. It's not the first thing I check, but but I do look. You know, I, I do want to know how the incentives line up. Yeah, I mean, a, a company with warped incentives can provide shareholder returns. I'm less convinced it will happen consistently. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, well, Tim, thank you so much for talking through this with me. Uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I, I think that this is a very good option B, not to say that Brian Froldy is the A choice, but but another, a multiple choice approach. I'll give to... him the A choice. <laughs> I, look, I mean, if you can do it, can, can we just say, like, if you can do it and you have a very clearly defined checklist for yourself that the amount of stress that takes off of you mentally, I think is worth its weight in gold. So there is, I, I give a strong plus one to a great checklist. And Brian, both Brian's have great checklists. Yeah, Brian Stoffel being the other Brian who has been on the show before. Um, but yeah, we're, we're you know we're trying to give something to uh, everyone here. Some people like the the clear framework. Other people like the thought exercises that I think you tend to go through with your approach. And you know, I know, I know. In Brian's case, he's like, I have the framework so that I can blame the framework. You know, yes. uh, <laughs> you create these systems so that there are times where it just doesn't work. It doesn't come together, and and you can at least kind of dissociate from it a little bit. <laughs> yes, yeah, I I think, and and in my case, I have nobody to blame but myself here because if I am making I erroneous judgments or my filter is wrong, this is why I talk to a lot of people though. I mean, I, I don't want to make it seem like I just make snap judgments here. I tend to talk to a lot of people. Like before I made a bigger bet on Fastly, I wanted to talk to a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, analysts and developers about it because it is really complex. And I just, I needed to know more. And as I've gone deeper and I've learned more, it has confirmed for me. But, um, this is not a short process. It was <laughs> yeah. not a short process with Fastly. At that's all. actually that's actually my immediate question in hearing you say that is if you were going to ballpark this whole thing that we've just run through, you know, in in real time, you know, what what does it look like? Is it days, weeks, months? It's it's usually a couple of weeks to get to a place where I feel very confident. But 
Um, and, and this is the big but. If it's really complicated and I feel like I'm in the right ballpark, then I will take extra time. So like with Fastly, I really felt like I needed to take extra time. You know, with Arista Networks, I feel like I needed to take extra time because these are deeply complicated businesses. Um, but generally, you know, like Peloton, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks. Well, Tim, I think I speak for our members and our listeners when I say I am happy that you put in that extra time because you are an awesome source of investing ideas. And, and as we found out today, processes as well. I appreciate that. I probably get more, way more credit than I deserve here, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it and <laughs> I'll, I'll take it humbly. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again for joining me, Tim. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. In fact, if you have a really awesome checklist or approach to investing, we want to hear about it. Maybe we can do a listener-focused show at some point. We're always looking for ideas, always looking for different ways to look at companies. You can always get us on Twitter as well, at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on! Fool on!